Father, this is our prayer tonight, that you would draw us nearer to, to you, and we know that this doesn't happen through some kind of mystical or ethereal concept, um, but it happens through your word as we understand it and apply it to our lives, and Lord, what a privilege it is to, to look at and study your word, and, and particularly to think about the gospel, the foundation for our life and our future resurrection, and we pray that we would be reinforced in our confidence in the gospel and awakened and and revived in our love for it as we look at this text tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the focus of our attention this evening. 1 Corinthians 15. This is a letter of reproof. Paul is responding to reports, remember, in chapters 1 through 6 about division and immorality and um, suing uh, fellow church members. Then in chapters 7 through 15, he responds to individual questions about various issues that are dividing the church. So in chapter 7, he writes about marriage and singleness. In chapters 8 through 10, he talks about personal liberty. In chapter 11, he teaches them about orderly worship. In chapters 12 through 14, he discusses the unity and the diversity of spiritual gifts and how the spiritual gifts must be used in an orderly way uh, in the worship service primarily so that there is actually edification going on rather than chaos and division. So here in chapter 15, Paul addresses the final question the final problem, we could say, uh, that, that is apparent in, in the Corinthian church. And this question has to do with the resurrection of dead believers. The argument that Paul is going to make in this chapter is that believers are guaranteed future resurrection because Christ was resurrected. And this is the key to our future resurrection, that Christ has been raised from the dead. As Christians, we must be sure of this truth. And so here in verses 1-11, through 11, Paul drives home this point which they should already know. Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's read it together. I'll read you, follow along in your Bible, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 
we need to recognize this passage is part of a larger section where he's trying to answer this larger question about will believers be resurrected from the dead? They're, they're waning in their confidence about that. They're not too sure about that, and that's why Paul's going to go after them hard beginning of verse 12. But here he wants to make sure that they understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our life and our future resurrection. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our life and future resurrection. The first thing that we learn about the gospel is that it is the gospel of the apostles, or we can say by the apostles in verses 1, 2, and 11. Paul here reminds them of what they had already received. And he knows that they received it because he preached it to them and they responded. And this reminder about what they should already know is critical to the rest of Paul's argument in chapter 15. Because Christ has been raised, verses 1-11, through 11, your faith is not in vain. Right? You are not still in your sins. You will be raised from the dead. All those results or products come from the source. Christ has been raised from the dead. We must be confident in this. Let me show you in the text how Paul reminds them of this critical point. In verse 1, they know this gospel because it was preached to them by the apostles. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. And then at the end of verse 11, he says, So we preach and so you believed. So he begins by saying, I make known to you in verse 1. This verbal phrase, make known, sounds like he's informing them of something new. But remember, he's talking to believers. So in order for them to be saved, they have to believe in the resurrection. They have to believe that Jesus has died and has risen from the dead. We know that from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. right? That whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that what? God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. Right? So there has to be a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, you, you all are Christians. You believers know this. So when he says, I make known to you, he's not saying, right now, I'm telling you something brand new. Instead, he's informing them of something that they already know. And the reason we know that is because of the next line, right? I make known to you, brethren the gospel which I preach to you. So there's a couple indications there. First, brethren. He's calling them brothers. People who believe in the gospel. And then he says, which also I preached to you. So Paul's not saying, I'm teaching you something new. He's saying, I'm reminding you of what you already know. That's what the NIV and I think ESV have as a translation there. I think that's a good one. I'm reminding you of what you already know because I preached it to you. And if this is the case, if Paul is reminding them of something they already know, and he takes 11 verses to do that, then his point in verses 12 to the end of the chapter are even stronger. Because he's going to say, I've already taught you this. This is the foundation of your salvation. And since this is the case, Christ has been raised bodily from the grave. How can you possibly not see the connection between your future resurrection? Right? So, so get this point. I, I'm driving it home again for you because this is critical. He's saying, 
for you to understand your own personal body, bodily resurrection. So they know this gospel because it was preached to them by the apostles. They know this gospel because they received it from the apostles. We see that at the end of verse 1, which also you received, and then at the end of verse 11, and so you believe. I think those two words are, are very close in meaning. They're synonymous like we saw in John chapter 1, right? Uh, came to his own, his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe, and I argued on Sunday, that receive and believe are, are, um, are coterminous. They're synonymous there. And I think they're synonymous here as well. The fact that they received it is proven in their belief. It's shown in their belief. It's just another way of saying the same thing. They know this gospel because it was preached to them by the apostles. It was received by the apostles. It was received from the apostles. And then thirdly, they know this gospel because it is the gospel that sanctifies. Notice at the end of verse 1, he says, in which also you stand. So this gospel is preached to you, you received it, and you are currently standing. In some sense, they are standing in the gospel. Now, not to the best degree, but in some sense, they are being sanctified by it. And the reason I say that is because of the next verse. See, this gospel is not meant to be believed and then forgotten. It's meant to transform us, isn't it? That's why he says that you must hold fast to it. In verse 2, which also you, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So as long as they hold fast to the word, then they are true, truly abiding in Christ. If they fall away, they show that they never had abided in Christ. Those who, who fail to persevere in the faith have believed in vain. Those who fall away have believed in vain. Isn't that what verse 2 tells us? If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, this is critical that the Corinthians agree about this first main point that Paul's making. You have had this gospel preached to you. You have received it. Because in the next section that we're going to look at next week, Paul's going to confront them on the denial of their own bodily resurrection. How could you possibly believe this when you believe that Jesus has been risen from the dead? So this is a gospel by the apostles. Secondly, it's the gospel about Jesus Christ. No surprise here. Verses 3 through 8, it's the gospel about Jesus Christ. That's what these next few verses are all about. Notice the parallelism. It kind of fills us in on the structure of the gospel, of this section, how Paul explains the gospel, and we, we could say summarized or maybe a kind of a succinct form. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance that which I also received. Then notice this word, that. That Christ died for our sins. So think of that as the first part of the gospel, Christ died for our sins. Then verse 4, and that he was buried. That's the second part. And then notice the next line, verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then verse 5, and that he appeared. So there's four parts to Paul's Gospel that must be believed that is the foundation for our life and future resurrection. Christ died, 
Christ was buried, Christ rose from the dead, and Christ appeared to these people. Four things. So, I think we can summarize it with two statements instead of four, and I'll tell you why I'm doing that here in just a second. I would summarize it this way. Jesus died for our sins, and Jesus is risen from the dead. So if you think about it in four lines, right? Verse 3, this first line, that Christ died for our sins. Line 1. Line 2, and that He was buried. Line 3, and that He rose again on the third day. Line 4, and that He appeared. Now, lines 2 and 4 actually explain lines 1 and 3, don't they? Or they identify or confirm lines 1 and 3. So, and that Christ died. How do we know that He died? He was buried. The very next line tells us, right? According to the Scriptures, we're going to get to that as well. It's proven by um, the, the prophets that went before Him. So how do we know that he died, that he was buried? How do we know that he rose from the dead? Line four. And that he appeared. So I think lines two and four actually explain the, the main two points of focus. Christ died for our sins and Christ is risen from the dead. We know that because he was buried and because he appeared. So let's look at the first one. Jesus died for our sins. Verses 3 and 4. Jesus died for our sins. Paul's going to make the claim and then he's going to give confirmation of the claim. First, he makes the claim in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He died to pay for our sins, to pay what we could not pay. And we can be sure of it because as Bill mentioned, it is according to the Scriptures. This is not something that was brand new or kind of just created on the spot. Like, oh, I got an idea. I'm living this life. They really don't like me. What if I just died? Maybe God would accept it as a payment for all their sins. No. This is something that was, that was uh, promised or predicted in the Scriptures. Now, it's a little tricky to, to think through this. Like, what is Paul talking about when he says, according to the Scriptures? My first thought is the Old Testament. But where in the Old Testament does it say that Christ died for our sins? Or that Christ would die for our sins? It doesn't say that Christ will die for our sins in the Old Testament. I don't know the wording, but the gospel is there when Abraham took the Isaac. And the Okay, so there's a there we would call that a type, a type of Christ, absolutely. Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53 and the prophecy of the suffering servant says he he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, verse five. So I would suggest that maybe that's what Paul's talking about when he says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The only problem I have with that is what about verse four? Notice what he says there and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, this one's a little bit more difficult. Where in the Old Testament does it say that Christ would rise from the dead on the third day? Okay, but on the third day, does it... What's that? Okay, yeah. 
Could be. Um, so that would be that would be more of an illusion than a direct quotation, but Paul doesn't say a direct quotation, so often the, the scripture writers do that. So that very well could be. And and that's a possibility. But let me just offer one other possibility of what Paul might be saying here. Rather than talking about we immediately think, okay, well he's writing the New Testament, so he must be talking about when he says scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And he could be. But remember, there's some other scriptures that have been written up until this point. Like what? Let me just tell you where he's at in history. Paul's writing from Ephesus in A.D. 54. Okay, so any other scriptures written besides Genesis through Malachi? And don't say the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, okay? That would be wrong. Uh, Maccabees, no. Um, Right. Right. But I mean, I'm saying in, in addition to those, in addition to those, are there any other scriptures that were written before 1 Corinthians? Okay. Probably Matthew was the earliest of the gospel. Right. So what if Matthew were written before 1 Corinthians? Now, there are scholars that believe that Matthew is written actually after the fall of the... Um, what is it, A.D. 70, the fall of, the, um, of Jerusalem there. Uh, so some people think it's actually written after that. I actually believe it was written earlier, and, um, and I haven't studied through the Gospel of Matthew yet, but just um, in some of the professors that I have sat under, that, that's their opinion as well. So it could be that, they were, that Matthew was written by this time. Galatians was the first, probably, book of the New Testament to be written. Galatians would have been written first and second Thessalonians and James would have been written by this time. So you have at least four or five books. Maybe Mark could have been written, but Mark's most likely a little bit later. So what if Matthew were were already written? Then Paul actually could be referring to when he says according to the scriptures, he's saying, Well, remember we have all these times where Jesus says, The Son of Man will suffer many things and be be handed over to, you know, these evil men and and to be um, beaten and, and killed, and then what does he say at the end? And then on the third day, he will rise from the dead. Now, the disciples don't understand all that, but, but Paul could be saying, listen, this is already something that's been written by Matthew and disseminated, accepted, and so maybe that's what, what he's saying here. Whatever the case... That's a possibility. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not sure how that all works, but that could be. Bill. And he could be. There's a couple allusions to, in like Jonah was in the belly. Some people take that as well. He was in there for three days, you know, and he came out on the third day or whatever. Um, obviously, Jesus alludes to that. 
as well in one of the Gospels. Or there's another passage in Hosea, but it's a little bit more spurious as far as its connection to this. So I, I, I actually don't know the answer. Um, he could be talking about Old Testament, but it just seems to me in that verse 4, where is it in the Old Testament that it says that Christ will, be ri- that will rise from the dead on the third day? It seems to make more sense that there would have been a Gospel written, um, but whatever the case, it was in the Scriptures. Jared? Right, which would have been the 40s, late late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, so then this would have been, what, 20 years after Jesus' death? Maybe 20, 23 years. So yeah, if those are already written and starting to disseminate, then absolutely that could be the case. But but I think there's also some, some merit to, um, to, to looking at the Old Testament as well. So, the fact is that Jesus died for our sins. This is what we're trying to focus on. The evidence of that or the confirmation of that is in verse 4, and that he was buried. And that he was buried. Did, did you ever wonder why the Gospels even talk about this? I mean, why not just say, you know, he died and then he was risen? Um, the, the Gospels each spend at least a paragraph each talking about the burial of Jesus Christ and all that went into it, the spices and, and the, the tomb and, and so on. And um, and the point of it, I, one of the points of it is that that no one is buried without first being dead. And the Roman soldiers saw death all the time, and they knew when a person who was hanging on a cross was dead or alive, which is why they would break the bones, uh, break the legs, and so on, in order to uh, prevent them from pulling up and taking a breath. Uh, they didn't have to do that to Jesus because he was already dead. Um, so, Jesus died for our sins. Secondly, Jesus is risen from the dead. The fact is stated at the end of verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And this is what Jesus had been telling his disciples, that, that they had so much trouble understanding that he would suffer and die as the Messiah. He would still suffer and die but he would rise from the dead on the third day. He, he talked to the Pharisees about tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they thought he was talking about something else. Each, each of the Gospels record the death of Jesus Christ in much detail, the burial of Jesus Christ, and each Gospel also records the resurrection of the Lord. And further evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, certainly that would be enough. But further evidence is found in verses 5 through 8. And Paul actually takes the most time of all his explanation of the Gospel. We tend to to, uh, to narrow down the our idea of the Gospel is that Jesus died. Sometimes we had buried, but, but then He rose from the dead. We don't usually talk about this fourth one, which I think is important because it actually shows that Jesus was really alive and that there were people at the time of of Paul's writing who could still go and talk to some of these witnesses who had seen the risen Lord. And so this is this fourth that. So that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and then the fourth that, verses 5 through 8, that he appeared. 
And he mentions a number of people to whom Jesus appeared. Cephas, 12, more than 500. Verse 7, he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and then to, to Paul himself. Now this list is not exhaustive, is it? Not comprehensive, because who else do we know that saw the risen Lord? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, right? All the Marys saw Jesus, um, um, probably the first to see him. And Paul's point is, is not to give a comprehensive list. Instead, he, he seems to be focusing on the witnesses. Uh, on the witnesses to Christ's post-resurrection life. And particularly, he puts special emphasis on those who have the responsibility to herald the gospel, the apostles. Right? He mentions Cephas. He mentions the Twelve. He mentions James. He mentions himself. And he mentions the apostles again. Now, the other 500 are, are just additional witnesses as well. But, but the point is, he seems to be focusing on those who will have the responsibility to just disseminate this gospel. So let's look at these. First, verse 5, Peter, or as he says here, Cephas. Peter and John were the first disciples to see, of the twelve disciples to see the empty tomb. And then at the end of verse 5, the twelve, this is probably certainly after Judas's um, suicide, so that's, then this is probably referring to the eleven plus Matthias. Then verse 6, 500 other disciples, or we can say believers, and, and I think the point here is that the fact that, that he appeared to real people who were still alive at the time of Paul's writing would show that this is not simple. This kind of gets rid of the argument that this was just a, a, a spiritual resurrection. Have you ever heard someone say that? You know, uh, Jesus, uh, let's say Christ, the Son of God, came into the earth and he entered into the body of this man named Jesus at the baptism. And then he left the body of Jesus at the cross of the resurrection. Um, and, and this actually shows that, no, this was a real person who lived his entire life on this earth, the person of Jesus Christ, and he was alive after his resurrection. Now, this is actually a bodily resurrection. This is going to be important later to remember that bodily part. This is not just a spiritual re- resurrection. This is not a spiritual resurrection, period. It's a bodily resurrection. Then in verse 7, he appears to James. James is the half-brother of the Lord. Uh, Galatians 1.19 says that he was, um, that, that, that Jesus appeared to him, uh, um, or that he was, I'm trying to remember what that text is. Galatians 1.19. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Okay, so that says that he's an apostle. Uh, James, as well as Jesus' other brothers, initially had some serious doubts about Jesus' ministry as he began to to go out into Galilee and so on. And so James was possibly converted at the appearance, the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Not clear uh, from the Scriptures, but, but that very well could be what happened. Verse 7, all the apostles. Now, he's already said that Jesus appeared to the twelve, so why would he say he's appeared to the apostles? Well, the apostles include more than the twelve disciples, right? The apostles include people, well, Paul, but we're going to talk about him in just a second. He's not an apostle at the time that Jesus would have appeared there, but James is certainly. So maybe he's talking about at least those thirteen apostles, a separate time when Jesus would appear to them. Finally, verse eight, Paul, as the one untimely born, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This phrase, untimely born. 
is used to describe a stillborn infant or an abortion or a premature birth. Paul's saying that my spiritual birth was unlike all of the other apostles in that it was abnormal. And, and he might be picking up on what the Corinthians are arguing against him, which is, Paul, you're not a legitimate apostle. You're more like a freakish apostle. And Paul's saying, and to me, the freakish one, he finally appeared to me. It's interesting that the resurrected Lord actually appears to Saul because consider the chronology of the book of Acts. Where in the book of Acts does Jesus ascend into heaven? Beginning, middle, or end? Beginning. Acts chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It goes on up into heaven. When do the appearances of verses 5 through 7 of our text take place? Before or after Christ's ascension? Before or after after his resurrection, but before or after his ascension. Before his ascension. His ascension meaning he goes off into heaven. Finally to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. So he, he lives on the earth, he dies, he raises from the dead after his resurrection. When I say ascension, I mean his final kind of his final ascension. So before his final ascension, all those things happen in verses five through seven. So that happens before Acts one. That's what I'm saying. Verses 5-7 through seven happens before Acts 1. When is Saul converted in the book of Acts? Saul. Right? Jesus ascends into heaven, chapter 1. Spirit baptizes the believers, beginning the church. In chapter 2, the apostles preach. Church grows. Believers are persecuted. Chapters 3-6. through six, Stephen preaches and is killed. While Saul's doing what? Saul's there approving the death of Stephen. Right? Holding the coats. Chapter 8, Saul rounds up the Christians all over Israel, puts them in prison, has others killed. And in chapter 9, he's on his way up to Damascus. He finds out about a pocket of resistance of believers who need to be persecuted or killed. And as he's going there, Acts chapter 9, to root out all these people on behalf of the Jewish stance that Jesus is a fraud, what happens? Saul is met on the road by the risen and glorified Christ himself. And Paul is one as untimely born. He's converted. And so do you see why Paul is calling himself this here in chapter 15? He's not like the other apostles. While they were suffering and the other disciples... Uh, followers of Christ, like Stephen, were dying for the Gospel. What was Saul doing? He was persecuting. He was an enemy of Christ. And so Paul says, I'm kind of a freakish result, or I'm, I'm kind of a freakish case when it comes to the apostles. I'm not like them at all. Except that he had seen the risen Lord. That was the key. They had to, it had to be someone who saw the risen Lord. They were going to be able to speak on behalf of the Lord. So this is a gospel by the apostles. It's a gospel about Jesus Christ. And then verses 9 and 10, it's the gospel of transforming grace. Paul says, I'm not fit to be called 
an apostle because I persecuted the church. It's not that he's not fit because he didn't see the resurrected Lord. He did see the resurrected Lord. But rather, he's not fit because he persecuted Christians and persecuted Christ. And yet, even in spite of his obstinacy, his, his enmity, his persecution of the church, for some reason, God still chose him to be an apostle, a formal herald of God's great message of salvation. And Paul's saying it's all of grace. It's grace that turned me from darkness to light. It's grace that turned me from a persecutor into an apostle. Notice how the, the word grace is used three times in, the ver- in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, by the grace of God with me. So, God's grace turned Saul from a persecutor into an apostle, but God's grace also created a new identity and gratitude for Paul. And Paul's saying it's all because of grace. By God's grace, I am what I am. It's his new identity. And also a new gratitude, right? This grace that worked in me did not prove vain. In other words, it's actually working to change him. It's what he wants the Corinthians to do in verse 2, so that you do not believe in vain. He wants them to hold fast. And he's saying, God's grace has, has... I'm holding fast to what God has held fast on me. Right? Kind of like Jude's language there. God's grace transforms a persecutor into an apostle. It creates a new identity and gratitude. And then thirdly, God's grace produces work. God grace, God's grace produces work at the last part of verse 10. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God with me. So who, who, who is he referring to when he says all of them? All the other apostles, most likely. The, the, most, the nearest antecedent uh, to this pronoun, them, is, is, um, is the apostles that he's been talking about. And Paul's saying, because of God's grace, I labor hard. I think we can learn much from Paul here. We can fall into the trap, I think, sadly, that believes that God, God's grace somehow turns us into passive creatures. You know, if any work's going to be done, then God has to do it. And is that true? If anything good happens, God has to do it. Well, ultimately, yes, that is true. But proximately, is that true? If anything good's going to happen, it has to be God. Ultimately, yes. Proximately, no. I mean, think about it. If you use that kind of theology, God's grace is going to do it, so I'm just going to... If it's going to happen, it's going to be God. If, if you use that theology to feed your baby at home, right? You, you could say, God's grace, it's God's power, God's sovereignty that causes the growth of a child. Is that true? Yes. So now my next logical step is, well, then I'm not going to feed my baby. Right? If God's going to cause him to grow, then he will grow. And so I'm not going to do anything. And we would say, that's a mindset of a fool. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is the one who gives health and gives growth. 
But God also uses means to accomplish ends, doesn't He? And so in this case, He expects us to feed our baby, right? And in the end, He gets the credit. And so what's Paul saying here? He's saying God's grace didn't turn me into a couch potato or someone who's just going to float down the lazy river of, of the Christian life. That's not what it does. Instead, it produces in me a desire to work hard. And he says, I worked harder than all the other apostles. He's not saying I, I worked harder because I'm better than they are. But, but simply because of the nature of his responsibility to take the Jews to the Gentiles, he couldn't just do that from Jerusalem and has, ask all the Gentiles to come to him. He had to go to them and by nature of his message, which was opposed by the Jews, it made it that much harder. He, he received great opposition. On top of that, he had a difficult travel itinerary that caused him to labor. This word labor in verse 10 means to labor to the point of exhaustion. This is me, Paul says. I labored to the point of exhaustion harder than all of the other apostles this term labor comes from a Greek root word that's used in John 4, 6 to describe Jesus. Remember the story in John 4? John 3 is Nicodemus. John 4 is the woman at the well. Jesus had been walking all day long and it's the heat of the day and He needs to take a rest. And so He, he was laboring. He takes the rest at Jacob's well. The same type of word there. And Paul says, I've done it. I've labored to the point of exhaustion. But notice at the end of verse 10 that he turns it back, gives the credit where it belongs, God's grace, so that no one's confused about who deserves the glory. He's not trying to draw attention to himself or say what a great person he is. I labored even, I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So anything good that came through me, was all God. It was God's grace. And I think this ought to be our mantra as well. God's grace transformed me and God's grace motivates me to work to the point of exhaustion and to work harder than other believers even. But in the end, any good that I do is because God's grace worked through me. George is a Christian and he's been praying for his co-worker Larry to get saved. He wants Larry to know the gospel and to believe. One day Larry is frustrated about life. Larry's two-year-old grandson is, has, been diag- has gone undiagnosed with a serious illness, making him increasingly ill. And the doctors have tried everything to figure out what's wrong with him. They've taken him to the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins. Still no clear answer. And George remembers the story about the woman with the hemorrhage in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, and how she had spent all of her money to get her problem resolved and researched and cured by all the doctors, but to no avail. And when Jesus walked by, she simply touched him on the hem of his robe and she was instantly healed. He told Larry that story. Larry, an unbeliever, wanted to believe that Jesus could heal his grandson, but he didn't know how to respond to George. And George didn't know how to follow up and so they went back to work and nothing more was said. 
What do you think about George's response? Was it a good one? Maybe an easier question is, was it a bad response? No. Right? He told a story that was true about Jesus and about Jesus' power. But are there any potentially subtle misunderstandings that could come from telling a story about explaining, without explaining it more carefully? Right, it has a tinge of the prosperity gospel in it, doesn't it? As if, Larry, if you trust in Christ and you believe hard enough, then your grandson will be healed. Now, does Christ have the power to heal Larry's grandson? Absolutely. But does Christ guarantee that Larry's son, grandson and, and my brother's wife will be healed if we believe hard enough? Right. My point in telling the story is to, to get us to see what is at the heart of the Gospel. The heart of the Gospel is not that Jesus came to earth from heaven, His incarnation. That's part of the Gospel. The heart of the Gospel is not that Jesus has compassion for those who are hurting. That is part of the Gospel. The heart of the Gospel is not that Jesus has the power to do miracles. That is part of the Gospel. It affirms that He is who He said He, he, he was. That He is the Messiah. The heart of the Gospel is what Paul teaches us and reminds us here, and that is that Jesus died for sinners and is risen from the dead. This is the heart of the Gospel. This is what Larry needs to know. The greatest help that George could give to Larry is not to guarantee his grandson's help. The greatest thing that Larry needs to know is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners because there's a greater problem at stake than bodily sickness. Now I recognize maybe that wasn't the time for George to to dive into the gospel and to dump the whole thing on them all at once. And so maybe he was using this as an opportunity to talk to him later. I recognize all that. But the point is that that what what Larry ultimately needed to know that Jesus Christ came to, to pay for sins and that he has risen from the dead. We need to understand the gospel. If we don't understand the core of the gospel then it will lead to all kinds of bad theology. That's what happens in Corinth, right? They don't comprehend fully or grasp or, or affirm or are convinced of the fact that Christ died for sins and rose bodily. And that leads to all kinds of bad theology about what's going to happen to them. A bad understanding of the Gospel will lead to all kinds of bad theology. Now, that doesn't mean that all bad theology comes because people don't understand these two principles. Christ died for sin and Christ is risen from the dead. But anything that corrupts this central part of the gospel is going to lead to all sorts of other bad theology. And Paul's point in the rest of this chapter is that their bad theology about the future resurrection or lack thereof flows from their failure to see and affirm with confidence what is at the heart of the Gospel, and it is this. That Christ died for our sins, He was buried, He rose from the dead, 
and he has appeared to many. He is alive. He's coming again. This is the heart of the gospel. Any questions, comments?